Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to uh, another episode on my poetry, People and Things channel. So excited to have you here. I am really excited to talk uh, to this uh, to my guest today, Michelle Herman. She has written, among other things, we're going to talk about two of her works, a novel and a collection of poems. So I'm really excited I get to do this. Uh, she's also edited some of my uh works in progress, my novels, uh, manuscripts, and uh, I've become a much astronomically better writer because of my work with her. So I'm so excited to welcome Michelle to the podcast today. I'm going to introduce her. She is the author of the novel Save the Village, Regal House Publishing 2022, which we will talk about today, and the poetry chapbook Victory Boulevard, Finishing Line Press 2018. Her poems, stories, and essays have appeared widely in publications, including The Sun, Plowshares, The Hudson Review, and The New York Times. The recipient of several writing awards, she teaches fiction, poetry, and memoir at the Writer's Studio, works as a developmental editor and writing coach, writes columns for The Village Sun, translates French songs and occasionally performs her own work in cabaret and theatrical settings. So we're going to talk about the novel Save the Village, as well as Just Another Jack, which is a chat book, um, The Private Life of Nursery Rhymes, which is so, so fascinating, um, which was also published by Finishing Line Press. So in that way, we are press mates, which is also fun. Um, so Thank you so much for joining me uh, from New York. Welcome, Michelle. Thanks so much, Megan. This is very exciting. Yeah, it's fun to do a, a different thing together. Usually it's, um, we communicate mostly in writing. Um, some words back and forth, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you redlining my work and me making it better. <laughs> Which is exactly what my goal is. So um, yeah, we've known each other quite a while, 2015, 16? I'm not sure. I think it's probably 2015. So quite a while now. Um, enough 
time for me to have now written two novel manuscripts. So, and I just always appreciate your questions and how you work, you, um, your developmental editor. I love how you work with people. So I just want to emphasize that it's, um, your questions have caused me to completely rewrite my novels in so much better ways and have helped me resolve plot problems. And um, there was the, the most recent novel manuscript, what I went in a completely different direction because of your questions. And it was just so much better. So I love, I love working with you in that way. So I just want to put that out there for readers. That... And, and, and back at you, Megan, I love the way your mind works and your wild imagination and, and the novels as I receive them the first time are always great, but I'm happy to learn that I help you make them better, better so still. Much better. <laughs> so much better. Um, so I am going to jump in with just another Jack. That's the, the, um, collection of poems, the, um, poetry, the private lives of nursery rhymes, the chapbook. Um, this is such an, such a fascinating collection there. Uh, they're quite long poems and, um, they're very immersive in story, kind of a background secret story, which, um, I was fascinated by. So I want, I would love for you to talk about, um, like what the impetus and inspiration was for this collection. I'd be happy to. And you already know the backstory. You are responsible for this collection in a very big way. And I'll, I'll tell everybody else, we were working on, I think we were working on one of your memoir pieces quite a while ago about your family. And you said to me once in a phone call um, about how you tend to be extremely hard on yourself and and maybe more conscientious than than most people are and you tossed off a phrase I'd never heard before which was oh I just have oldest daughter syndrome and I'm an oldest daughter too and I thought oh I've got that in spades too and and so that maybe it was even that day when I was sitting down to do my daily writing I thought oh I want to do something with that and but I knew from long experience as a writer, as a teacher, that coming at subjects head on usually doesn't work very well. I always need to come in obliquely with some offbeat way of, of getting at the heart of what I want to get at. And and coming from a school, the writer's studio where I teach and where I was a longtime masterclass student as well, I know that enlisting a persona often is the answer. And so I thought, well, who else might have oldest daughter syndrome. And the very first thought that came to my head was the oldest daughter of the old lady who lived in the shoe. And, and I sat down and I wrote the first of what became just another Jack. Um, the, the poem was called, um, what's it called? The oldest, the oldest child's lament. Yes. <laughs> and it's the one poem that appears in both my chapbooks of poetry uh, in my previous one as well, which is called Victory Boulevard, which came out in 2018, also by Finishing Line Press. Mm -hmm. um, so it came out in a big chunk of text. I did it all in iambic, but but, but without line breaks. Particularly, well, I had line breaks, but they were not strict line breaks at all. No kind of pentameter. And out poured the story of the oldest daughter of the old woman in the shoe um as you know as i imagined her her actual life might be i granted her um 
you know, a, a real existence in some kind of an agrarian past somewhere in a British Isle, maybe where I imagined her living. And I told her story. I had where I had her tell her own story in first person. Mm -hmm. um, I spelled everything correctly. I left off the punctuation because she talks about how she has very little education because she's so busy trying to keep the little kids from killing themselves because the mom is never around. Um, and I had so much fun doing that, that I thought I want to do more of these. And what was, I can't even remember which one was the second one. There are eight of them and they're mm -hmm. all based on very well-known nursery rhyme characters, but maybe it was the deedle deedle dumpling one or else it was, um, or else it was uh, Jack Spratt told from the point of view of his wife. Um, so I, I set about matching up nursery rhymes and human predicaments that I was yeah. interested in pursuing, kind of timeless ones, um, because I felt like a lot of authors have done the opposite of taking either mythological or storybook characters and bringing them into our world. I wanted to disappear into their world. Mm -hmm. um, so I... I just kept doing this on the side whenever I didn't have something else pressing I had to do. I'd think, okay, this is going to be today or this week or this month. And, and then I got a little, well, we can talk more later, but um, I, I can tell you how the last poem flicked into place. Yes. That was actually, that's on my list of questions. Yes. <laughs> okay. So I can tell you that now. So the oh, last yeah, totally. yeah. idle poem, um, Jack, and it's about, um, Jack, the, the Jack who jumped over the candlestick. And of course I realized there's a lot of Jacks in nursery rhymes. So <laughs> right. that became the title. Um, and I was struggling with his story. I, I, I had a good chunk of it. I had, I, I created the tavern and I created his backstory, but I felt like something was missing and it got to be 2020 and the pandemic hit and that was the last piece that I felt I needed to complete that poem. I thought, oh, he lives in a in a plague time. Um, I, I don't specify what disease was, mm. was coming through the land when he lived. I, I thought of it as yellow fever. Um, but that was, you know, weird serendipity, you know, the, the world shuts down and the poem opens up. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. I one of the things I loved about reading this collection is that uh, and this I realized this sort of applies across the board is that when something or someone is given a backstory, it's it or they are given dignity. And that was something very interesting to apply to nursery rhymes. Um, we all grew up hearing most of these nursery rhymes and. Yes. It was so fascinating to consider those characters that we all can recite some rhyme from our childhood uh, that, oh, they might actually have backstories, too. It just made them a lot more, a lot realer. And that uh, which I thought was fascinating because it didn't even occur to me as a child that even my parents would have backstory. Like it would just, <laughs> of course not. Yeah, right. I didn't even know my parents had first names till I was like 12, and, <laughs> which, which is a little late for realizing that. But um, I, I just, I found that to be, I found that to be very, very fascinating as well as there. Um, 
the the oldest daughter syndrome is such such a thing uh i was noticing i and maybe i'm particularly sensitive to this um the role of the mother kind of comes in various places the role of 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 the wife of a, of adults of other types of um people who are expected to be in charge or to be in control which is one of the um i would say impositions that being an oldest daughter makes on one's personality is the expectation to be in charge um and through no fault of any parent generally that's just kind of how that goes particularly for daughters rather than sons and so i was uh, i'm not at all surprised that that line that i said the oldest daughter syndrome uh caught you and that it's so it's so interesting that that is the um, inspiration in a large way for this uh, collection. It um, makes me wonder what your thoughts are on this very often repeated among the writer community, probably outside the writer community too, uh, idea that writing is a solitary act. Um, I wonder what what are your thoughts on on that particular idea or experience? Well. Yes, it is solitary in that you're sitting in a room by yourself in the you know the most basic way, but you're also calling on everybody you've ever known and every every place you've ever been and everything you've ever read. So, in some ways, it's a highly populated activity. Also, yes, um, I'm also a big believer in finding a community of writers, whatever form that may take, so that it it is less lonely. Um, and I've been lucky to have lots of them over the years and most notably has been my association with the writer studio, yeah. um, which goes back to like 19, not even 1990, the late, late 80s. And wow. I can trace this because my first son was born in 92. And I remember being in the master class for the first time with a very big belly. <laughs> I went into the master class in 91 and I remain in touch with a lot of those people and some of them are my teaching colleagues now and 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 I include in my community all the students that I work with who, who I treasure um and there's lots and lots of them over the years and and I'm lucky that I'm teaching memoir now and in the memoir classes I don't have to pass my students along to the next level up um I, I'm teaching all the levels, so I get to pass them along to me at, you know, at the next yes. stage. And working with people over a long period is such a great pleasure. And I, you know, I can watch the progress, mm. um, watch people come in wherever they come in. Some of them come in never having written a word of, of fiction or memoir or poetry, which whatever class I was teaching. Um, and then by the time they come into my advanced memoir class now, they're they're writing their their manuscripts and they're writing at a professional level. It's 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 a great thrill. Oh, that's so that's so great to to be able to to kind of follow people through their their writing. Yeah, and and just to know their process, know what what stops them cold, and <laughs> to help them steer around those spots. Yes, I think that's been so beneficial too for me as as a writer. Uh, not not only the the feedback on the actual the piece in front of me, the one thing I'm working on, but having the backstory of 
oh yes, this this is something that that is 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 consistently difficult for this writer, and maybe the history behind that doesn't have anything to do with writing. Um, so it's that backstory. I think that it's just it's so powerful to know the backstory, which can come with. I used to think it it only came with time, tracking somebody through time. Mm-hmm. Um, but just another Jack showed me. Oh well, I got to know the backstory of all of these characters that had kind of populated my childhood um, in in an afternoon of sitting down and reading poems. So. Mm-hmm. So it's more than it's more than time, although obviously that does help with with people. Um, how did you get to know and or construct um, the the backstories of these of these characters? Did they tell you? Did you pull in elements that that you thought would be um, Im- important to include, or was there something else entirely that kind of helped you fill in? the backstories of these and obviously these are all it's all conjecture right we don't really fully know these are all fictional (laughs) characters but yeah how did you how did you get to know the backstories of these characters I just played around it's funny these came more readily than most things come to me Mm. and when that happens when you get one of those rare gifts from the gods you can't always even remember what the impetus was it just kind of arrives but let me see, what can I remember? Um, I'm, I'm thinking about the poem um, about Little Miss Muffet, which ended mm-hmm. up being told from the point of view of her twin brother. I have, I don't remember why I needed to invent a twin brother. I don't know if I was thinking about gender identity issues, which are so much, you know, in the, the culture these days. Maybe that was what led me to create the, the brother who's named Hugh. Yeah. Um, I know where the name Hugh comes from because uh, there was a boy I had a crush on in ninth grade who was a Huber. Um, so I just kind of, that felt right. I pulled that yes. in and, and I'm doing that constantly. Um, the the one about Little Bo Peep starts out talking about turnstiles in on farms in in mm. Wales, mm-hmm. my husband and I once went to Wales and stayed in the country, and noticed that every single turnstile was a different design from from the one before. And I was sort of interested in that. So I guess you know I had this idea of, of using Bo Peep, and I thought, well, what do I know about sheep? Yeah, <laughs> and that was the first thing that came to mind. And before I knew it, okay, I, she was Welsh, of course. Right, um, of course, and. And, you know, and she lived on this small island and that kind of informed the picture that grew in my head of, of how she went out to, you know, to feed her sheep every every morning. And and I decided she was in puberty and, you know, just starting to um, have a new awareness of, of girls and boys and the differences between them. And, and so... I gave her a, a guy she had a crush on. She could daydream about. Yes. Um, and then I thought, well, what you know, what would she wear? What would she eat? What would the rest of her day be like? And I just kind of pieced together what felt right to me. And I gave each of the characters a slightly different way of speaking. Yeah. Some some have better grammar than others. Some yes. speak in what I think of as as a kind of a you know. What, what is it? Your kind of Anglo-Saxon yeah. old 
the way you'd hear people uh, in the various British islands yeah. speaking. Um, and I just, I didn't do any research. I just went with what sounded right in, in my head. That was one of the pieces I picked up on is the different, uh, the different accents, if you will, or dialects or ways of speaking. Um, it felt very natural to read that. Uh, and usually uh, I, and I hear this from other readers too, that, that um, if you do phonetic dialect, it's, it's hard for people to, to kind of get it. But yeah, you don't need a lot. I I always, I always tell writers just, yeah, just a hint here and there. You don't need to carefully go through and change the spelling. Right. People can fill in a lot of it in their own minds. Yeah, it really doesn't take much because then once we get the clue of, oh, yeah, we're going to say me instead of my, the if you heard that way of speaking, your brain fills it in. Exactly. It felt very, it felt very natural that these characters would be speaking in in what whatever the various ways that um they they came to you or that you chose to to put their voices in and i found that to be fascinating because those stories are all in at least in in my head in many of our heads uh from children and from childhood and i had never considered how those characters would actually speak i just know the story about them um you know Jack and Jill going up the hill, Jack and Jill um, doing these things, Jack jumping over the candlestick, Jack planting a beanstalk, all of these various stories I know. And it never occurred to me that they might have their own voice. Never occurred to me either until I yeah. started doing it. Which is kind of a fascinating thing about childhood. How is it that we we have no awareness really of like oh adults had other lives before me or they're just they didn't just appear when I appeared they have this whole backstory and then we somehow get to the the place as adults where we understand that we understand there are backstories um and I think that this this collection really kind of helped there be a bridge from because it sort of seemed like we just arrived here in childhood and then we just arrived here in adulthood and at least that's how my experience has been. Um, but uh, and maybe that's just a generation thing. I don't know. But this reading this collection kind of smoothed that over like, oh, yeah, they're these are contiguous stories. These aren't just characters that pop in in your life at a certain time and then kind of get stuck there, um, which is how most nursery rhymes, at least I experience them go. Um, I think you had mentioned at one point in one of our email exchanges recently um, that you had, uh, that the Just Another Jack was published dur- during or just before the time of the pandemic. Um, Both Just Another Jack and my novel Save the Village came out in early 2022, so during the pandemic. Okay, okay. How has that experience been for you as compared to maybe other book launches. I know you had um, uh, the um, books come out in 2018. So before the time of of COVID, um, how's that whole experience been? Well, I was lucky in that the publisher of my novel, Regal House, had me slotted in for what was called the fall season of 2021. And, mm. and I wanted to push out the publication date as far into the future as I could, hoping that things yeah. would get better. Yeah. And 
so it turned out that February 2022 still fell within that season that I was assigned to. And I said, yeah, I'll take the latest date you got. So I I was very lucky that by by February 2022, we'd all been, well, those of us who got vaccinated were vaccinated and, sure. and I could move relatively freely in the world. And I took a trip to the West Coast that spring. And the one thing I never had was a proper book party at one single big mm. book party, but I had a whole lot of little events and a whole lot of readings. Um, some of them virtual, but mostly I was able to do in-person stuff. Awesome. Was I mostly, it was a mix in 2022. Yeah. Um, and I'm still do, I'm doing two book groups in the next couple of months. So, okay. you know, I, and I did a reading just on Saturday with a bunch of other local finishing line authors. Too bad you couldn't be there. Yeah. They were great. Um, so on it, on it goes, it's been a really exciting time and the pandemic did not end up hampering me too much. I love to hear that. I love to hear that the pandemic um, didn't take as much as sometimes it feels like it did. Um, so that's been that's been really that's been really great. Um, so that's great to hear. Uh, is there I'm, I want to switch to Save the Village partly because we talked about, OK, writing is a solitary act, but also it's it's a village act. And um, this this novel kind of captures not necessarily writing, but some of that village feeling. Um, but is there anything else that I didn't ask you about Just Another Jack that you wish I would have or anything else you want to share about about this collection? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> nothing's coming to mind. I mean, I will say if there's one that feels nearest to my heart, it might be the, the, oh, yes. the one about the Sprats to have and to hold. Yes. Because <laughs> I just I love the way Mrs. Spratt came out on the page. <laughs> yes. Um, and and she's in a very bad way. They're both in a very, very bad way. Um, but I kind of, I love her. Um, she's very it's, unfiltered. It's very um, endearing. Yes. And she's she's one of the least educated of the gang. Um mm -hmm. her her English is is loose and and I guess some of this owes a little something to the the one of the few times I ever traveled by myself. I was doing a junior semester in Paris. I was lucky enough mm. to get to do that, and I went to Edinburgh. I spent a week yeah. in Scotland yeah. by myself at age twenty one, and you know, and this was a little bit daunting, but yeah. I had a great experience. So I guess that that's in there somewhere. Like she she uses the term "dugs" to describe her breasts, and I yes. just remember. Here, I'll tell you, I'll tell you the origin story of that. There was, when I was a, a kid, we had a cat named Wally. And right near the hotel where, where I was staying, there was a pub called the called the Wally Doug. Um, and I guess I looked up the word Doug because I didn't know what that meant. And, that, and I found out that's what it meant. So, <laughs> so that's how, you know, she ends up, and she also describes her breasts as potatoes. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. So and I, that's all I can think to add to what we've talked about. That is that's so fascinating. I I had it felt it, there was a very distinctly Edinburgh. I've tra I traveled um when I was we share that experience. I was 23, but I traveled to Scotland by myself what as do you well. Know? And um I spent a lot of time in Edinburgh and 
in Glasgow. And this had a very distinctly Edinburgh flavor. And I just wondered if that was in my head. So that's very fascinating because they're actually very different cities. Oh, it owes a little something to Edinburgh. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I oh, I love that. I love finding these little commonalities and wondering, like, oh, I I sort of feel like this might be might be from Edinburgh, um, because I had a little a little kinship with that. And I just yeah, the, they're so the care all of the characters in that appear in just another Jack are so endearing in their in their own way, as is appropriate for a collection about the private life of nursery rhymes. Um. So for uh, listeners, I will be linking uh, where you can get Just Another Jack as well as Save the Village, which we will talk about next. This, this is the novel um, in the show notes. So um, uh, as there, as I asked you about the uh, the inspiration for Just Another Jack, I'm curious what the seed, uh, if there was a seed of an idea for this novel is. I'm always fascinated to hear about the, the backstories of stories. Sure. Yes, very much so. And it goes back a long time. My husband and I, before we were married, moved to Greenwich Village in 1985. And had a, we had a little apartment on Jane Street. We were so tickled to live on a street called Jane Street. And we fell madly in love with, with the neighborhood and couldn't believe our good fortune at getting to live in the village. And we instantly joined a lot of preservation groups. We we took a tour the first weekend. We were here, a walking tour with a great guy. And we embedded ourselves pretty deeply in neighborhood uh, politics and preservation activities and, and arts as well. And so I always knew if I was going to write a novel, it was going to be my village novel. So that, that was never in question. And I always knew it was going to be called Save the Village because... That was the name of Jane Jacobs group when she started fighting mm. to save the village in the early, I guess, late 50s, early 60s. And then when we the first organization that we joined was also called Save the Village as an oh. homage to Jane. Um, so that was a no brainer. It was going to be Save the Village. And and I wanted it to be this kind of love story to the old time villagers that we got to know who were still around in those days. Some of them are still around. A lot of, a lot of them had died. So, and, and I guess because we took this great walking tour with a guy um, who died young of AIDS, um, I wanted my main character to be a, a tour guide, um, which also gave me kind of an instant structure because I could, have the first chapter be a tour and then and yeah I, I two, there are two t- tours in, in yeah. the novel um so yeah I just wanted her to feel like a like one of those villagers who spent her life in a fifth floor walk up and who never earned much money um who's feisty and difficult um and smart but also very provincial in in a way <laughs> because she rarely leaves <laughs> You know, the neighborhood rarely goes above 14th Street. Yes, I I loved Becca. I didn't um, I don't have any life experiences that really overlap with hers at all. But I felt like there was a part of me that was being seen in her character. Oh, with... that's so nice to hear. Can, can you say more about that? Yeah. So I think um, in general, I can't remember where I heard this quote about writing, but it's um the more particular, the more universal. And like, oh, don't yes. try, don't try to talk to everybody. 
be very, very specific about your character. Um, and don't don't worry about alienating other people. Um, don't worry about leaving people out. And this really, really helped me see exactly how that's true. So, um, so Becca, I mean, I've, I've, I've been only to New York city and it was when I was a teenager. So it was quite a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I, it was on a tour with my high school band. So we were tourists. Um, so we didn't really see any, anything other than like just what tourists in New York city see. And then also we played at Carnegie hall. So that was fun. Um, but that, uh, and I also felt a little bit like a gerbil in New York City because it was just the very tall buildings and you're just kind of tunneling through them. Um, and uh, I mean, I thought it was awesome to go to New York City as a 17 year old who is from Colorado. But uh, I didn't draw on actually any of my experiences in, in New York because it's only been yeah once and then once at the airport. So only twice have I been to New, to New York City. So it was more that the, as you said, the um, shh. Becca is uh, difficult and kind of unapologetically difficult, which I loved that in her. I That's why I couldn't actually put the novel down at all. That was the most fascinating thing. Um, there was, I mean, there was some sort of like, sh like, oh, should, should I maybe, should I maybe feel guilty about these things? Maybe, but like her unapologetic, just this is who she is. That's how that came that, I mean, that's how that came across to me. And I realized as I'm like, I really love this character who um, I don't, I, I, I was a tour guide when I was in college, didn't like it at all. And um, Becca seems to love <laughs> giving tours. Um, and I mean, I've, I've been in proximity of a, of a major tragedy, not as an adult, but so that came in a little too, just kind of that layer of, it's not quite i mean it's a little bit survivor's guilt but it's also this like i was the last person to see these people yeah what does that mean about me what does that mean about how i should be living my life exactly yeah. and making these big things out of things that may be just coincidences but are they can we really know for sure so it was those kinds of threads um that really and i realized as i was really falling in love with becca for the fact that she was difficult and feisty and um, really wanting relationship. And there's just like all this like broken relationship all around her. Oh, yeah. um, that's, and I was like, I love her for those things, but I don't love myself for those things. That's weird. I wonder why that would be. And so it really helped me see it's, it's sometimes way easier to see ourselves from the outside. I mean, I'm not exactly Becca, of course, um, but just those aspects where I was like, oh, I kind of feel bad about being difficult. I feel bad about being feisty. I feel weird about, um, you know, being in proximity to this, uh, which was the Columbine high school shooting that's happened oh, where, where I'm from, um, happened when I was 13. So I wasn't an adult, but I was very close to it. And I knew two of the victims. Oh. So, which as a 13 year old is like, these are your friends. Um, but seeing it kind of projected out so it's more of an outward experience looking in rather than just the subjective internal experience we all have of each other yeah. every day really was startling. I wasn't really expecting that at all. And uh, this, all of the particulars about Becca that I don't have experience with just kind of helped me get into her character because I can say like, okay, well, you know, I, I, I know what it's like to have a job that I 
loved and then to have that kind of get destroyed or now there's this heavy weight on it in some way i know what it's like to have weird relational strife that is like how do we fix it and what's even wrong and um to kind of wrestle with those questions i don't have children but i have people who are very close to me and i want them to be closer but they don't want to be closer all of this stuff um it just felt like the particulars of becca that i don't relate to help me get into the parts that i did so it is so true that the the more particular the more universal um and i think that and this book was very it was also a very immersive experience I felt like I could see uh, Greenwich Village. I, to my knowledge, I haven't been there. Um, I we were wandering through all parts of New York City at one point, but uh, and as a teenager, of course, I wasn't really paying attention um, <laughs> to the particulars of where I was. But I felt like I got the feeling of what it's like to be there. Oh, I'm um, so glad. I'm so glad. Which is where? Yeah, that's like your home. So it makes sense that that was, you were able to convey, this is what it's like to be in this place. I felt like that was very, that was a very important aspect of this novelism. Yeah. You know, we all have things that come more readily to us than others and making people feel like they're in a place is one of the things that I, that I do without having to work at it. It, That's just there for me. You know, I had to work really hard at a lot of the other aspects. Sure. Um, and, you know, and one of the things you you, you talk about um, admiring Becca's feistiness and difficulty and being able to see it because you're at a distance from it. You know, I had to create that. And I don't do not think of myself as one of the feisty, confident ones. You know, I'm one of the apologizers. And I yeah, I needed to it took me a while to to get her to spring to life and to be um interesting and not off-putting or you know just to to straddle the two in a a way that felt um like it had some depth to it It, i i had to spend a long time doing that i think it's worth it because the portrayal of difficult women i think is really important i think we have focused um unintentionally or otherwise culturally there are probably reasons for this on female characters even female writers being likable in a way that doesn't happen with men or male characters really it's so true yeah so that's one of the things i thought was so endearing about about becca was that there there is this difficulty and i i don't know i mean Maybe it is slightly off-putting. I think sometimes I'm off-putting to people, but I still get to have good relationships and be loved anyway. And I think that's so important for uh, for readers to hear is this this character, the main character, Becca, is 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 difficult. And um, I think whether one can relate to her or not, uh, I think there's an endearing aspect to her that is connected to her being difficult because I know for me when I read characters who are difficult and their difficulty sometimes contributes to the problems in their lives mm-hmm. um like well if you just went along and then you wouldn't be having these issues or um you know if you just did what other people said but I like those characters more than 
the the ones who are you know maybe doormats or who don't really stand up for what they what they w- really want to say uh and maybe their lives are easier but do we don't really want easy when we're reading and i think this, this is a really good and this i mean this is this is a, a story of multiple tragedies i mean there's the obvious one um but then there's multiple like long standing or like slow drip tragedies too that i think uh, unfortunately, all of us can relate to in some way. Um, yeah, yeah, and she's kind of made a mess of a lot of relationships. Yes, yeah, a lot of it's her. A lot of it's her fault. Yeah. Um, some of it isn't, but a lot of it and is. It's, yeah, and so it, you mentioned this tragedy without saying what it is, but it happens early on in the story, and of course, yeah. it's the kind of thing that's big enough to cause somebody to both to rethink a lot of things and to open up in the way that I remembered us all opening up after 9-11. That was, mm. I wanted very much to get that quality yes. of, um, of, of, uh, of people letting down their guard and everybody feeling like they're part of one big family here in the city. Um, so that's one of the reasons that I, I created the event that I created. Yeah. I mean, I also did it for, for writerly reasons. Right. Um, you know, I remember my my teacher saying you have to be willing to put your characters in harm's way. Yeah, um, which a lot of us were really reluctant to do. It felt very threatening. It felt like we were putting mm-hmm. ourselves in harm's way. And who wants to do that? Especially yeah. when you're just yeah. sitting safe at your desk, right? Right. <laughs> right. Why is this necessary? Yeah. yeah. But it's it is okay. necessary to you know yes. to create enough um, gravitas for a novel. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what's so interesting is um, the, the the title is Save the Village. So as I'm reading, I'm thinking, okay, what does the village need to be saved from? That's like the first question that the title raises for me. And I was kind of getting glimpses of that before the inciting incident and before the tragedy. So it's so it's so interesting. I did I um I do remember I was 15 when 9/11 happened and I remember there was a distinct shift in the feeling in the culture uh which was very well captured in in Save the Village. Um and I think it's it made me it made me remember oh it it sometimes takes a tragedy to bring together uh, a whole group of people. This was, there was already a need for saving the village that came up very, very quickly. And then this, this incident happens. And I'm like, oh, why is it that horrible tragedy, which none of us consciously want, we all want to avoid that. We don't want to be part of it. We're part of, that's what some of us have anxiety about is are we going to be part of a, a major tragedy? And yet it kind of seems like very often the thing that will cause action that needed to happen anyway to to actually occur. Yes. Why do you think that is? Because most of the time we go around protecting our, our, our safety, our ability even just to be bored and have routine and when something shakes you out of all of that and makes you feel that you're lucky to be alive, um, your mm. priorities shift a little bit, right? 
Yes, <laughs> that yeah. is that is true. We, you know, and then we tend to slide back into our old ways, but sometimes we're changed permanently from an event. Mm. Yes, that reminds me of one of the lines that I wrote down um, uh, at, that really struck me when I read it was they're talking about relationships, um, but it's funny that it's called a dynamic, dynamic when, it's, when it's such it's a static thing. <laughs> I it had just never occurred to me that that's one of those lines where you're like, oh, it's so obvious. And yet I had never thought about that. Um, they're talking about family, the, that particular passage is talking about family dynamics, but well, I think it was maybe about the friendship, the friendship. The yes. Two women. The two went right. Yeah. Becca and, and Maura. And they, it's like just this offhanded comment. And yet that I had to stop and go, Oh, what, what is behind that labeling of, Oh yeah, we have this dynamic when it's like, it's the same thing over and over again. I know it's funny, isn't it? Yeah. How I, do I we, that- how do we create in my head one day? Yeah, I love that. How do we create such dynamics? And then how do we get out of them? It yeah. does it take a tragedy? Or can yeah, we well, I mean, that's out? what happened. You know, then the novel goes on to show yeah. them changing the dynamic in yep. unexpected ways. Yeah. Um, Was that but... a conscious? Because it sort of seems like one of the drivers for for Becca in continuing to pursue this sort of dysfunctional friendship is like, I, I just, I want, I want, I want this. I want friendship. I want relationship and maybe not even totally understanding. Like, it seems like they miss each other. They don't really understand. Like they struggle to relate, which I can totally relate to. Um, and they don't directly head on talk about <laughs> the issue, but I kind of wonder sometimes like, is that it, would that even be helpful to, directly address a head-on address it head-on um and yet the the dynamic definitely changes i think it it isn't it's maybe catalyzed by, by the the incident the, the tragedy but it sort of also seems like for something to be a permanent change there has to be continual effort made in that direction yeah well i'll say so the, so for those who don't know, we're talking about the main character, Becca, and yeah. this other character named Melora, who's Becca's foil in a lot of ways. They couldn't be more different in every possible way, but they met because their their sons were born at about the same time at St. Vincent Hosp- Vincent's Hospital, which is now defunct, sadly. But oh. um, so they, they became very close because their, their kids were best friends when they were little. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and they among their many differences um were some serious socioeconomic differences that that differences that got bigger as mm. as time went along and and they ended up as sworn enemies um because Melora became prosperous and Becca remained the same in her fifth floor walk up um and it's funny I've, I've read a a lot and answered a lot of questions about the novel and and somehow Melora always gets short shrift and I love Melora yeah because Melora you know I felt that Becca changes and grows but so does Melora and it took the two of them both yeah. changing to find their way back to each other and I also I will say that I always like romantic comedies where you know two people meet and hate each other yeah. and you know that by the end of the movie yeah. they're going to be married. 
and but the fun of it is seeing how the change happens so I kind of gave myself that challenge that you know these two you know Melora's tall and glamorous and fashionable and Becca's you know wide and schlumpy um and and Melora is a realtor and Becca is a tour guide. You know, everything is completely different yes. about them. But so it was really fun to think, okay, so how can I make this thing happen that I don't know if if readers would guess that it might happen because it's not the standard romantic situation. But mm-hmm. I just wanted, you know, how what are what crazy paths can they take toward reconciliation in some completely unexpected way? So I invented all kinds of things that threw them together, um, including some koi in a pond. Um, um, so, so that was me having fun, you know, seeing if I could pull this off in some, some lively way. That is something that is, uh, that I found to be true in both Just Another Jack and Save the Village is, um, that there's, it was fun, it was fun to read. Even oh, though the safety village is, is serious and serious, serious harm happens at the beginning. But it was, and it's not to downplay that at all, but there was so much, f- and I read for fun in general, but there was, I I could tell that you had fun writing it. And I don't usually have that experience with when I'm reading. Like, I'm having fun reading this thing, but it was like, yeah, this feels like it was fun to to be in this world, to be in this character, even though there's very so many serious things happen. But that playing around with that relationship between Becca and Melora was just so I, it was it kept me guessing, like, what is going to happen? Are they going to remain enemies? Are they going to work this out? Why are they even still getting thrown together? Like all of these things <laughs> that then um, paralleled, you know, relationships that I have is why do we why do I keep talking to this person? They're so different than me. We keep fighting. And yet here we are being thrown together again and again. Maybe there's something here. Um, Something else that I found really paralleled my experience in relationship, we all read through our own experience, I think, Uh, it's sort of hard not to, is um, this came up in the beginning of our conversation, the uh, in in an indirect way, but the mother-daughter relationship, um, particularly this, this one with Beckett's, there's a very, the mother is also very difficult. Uh, in in a kind of totally different way than Becca and yet I see the clashes because they're yes. similar you've captured one type of tension um between mothers and daughters that can happen really well and um yeah I just I want to read I made another note of this passage here that I that I want to read too it's a part of a larger passage um so and I'm just going to start here with uh Lou, the dad, had been the hugger in the family, but now her mother got on her tiptoes and pulled Becca into an awkward embrace. In her mother's presence, she had always felt she took up far too much room, and now she felt wide and weighty and far too needy. That seemed to have some universal quality to to it where every oldest daughter that I've ever met has had some version of that. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Too, you're too much. You're too much for me. It's you're taking up too much room. My version of is of it is that my mother would say, 
don't cause a scene. Interesting. And I have various other friends who are our oldest daughters and their mannerisms or their the way they move about the world is they're trying to just contain, be small, don't take up space. And until it's called out, they just think that's that's just how it's supposed to be. You're supposed to let other people go first. You're supposed to defer. You're supposed to accommodate. And but there's underneath a lot of resentment that yeah. we didn't we weren't seen. We weren't uh honored for who we were we had to make room for the the other siblings or the other people or just um and i i have compassion for the for the moms too now as an adult because that's got to be really difficult like oh i my life can't even primarily be about me anymore it has to be about at least for the the developmental stages has to be about this other person and um i haven't met anybody who's totally ready for that <laughs> as much as they <laughs> as much as they want children um so i don't want to throw mothers under the bus of course uh but i just yeah would you talk more about the the creating that difficult dynamic between between becca and and her mom well if if there's anything autobiographical in the novel i would say that i borrowed some characteristics of my relationship with my own mother although Doris, the mother, is completely unlike my mother in most ways. But this that feeling of the size that, you know, that Becca was too big for her mother, that's something that I very much felt. Though I'm an oldest daughter, um, I am much smaller than my younger sister. So I didn't have that, you know, I didn't, I wasn't a big personality and I didn't take up physical mm -hmm. space. So I don't have that aspect of this syndrome that we're talking about, but um, yes, I always did have the feeling of, of you know, a sort of semi-conscious feeling like a, I'm, I'm too big when I'm around my mother. I need to be smaller. And that, yeah. and that was a physical sensation. And that was also, you know, an emotional thing that I, you know, I can't, I can't become a bigger personality. I have to rein myself in mm -hmm. to remain in her good graces so 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 creating becca and doris um i guess that you know they've slowly accrued characteristics and tensions um doris is very uh, much more um she's she's a suburbanite um <laughs> she she wanted nothing to do with the village she got out as soon as she could um her marriage to to Becca's beloved father was not a good one in ways that Becca was not necessarily aware of because she just adored her father. Mm -hmm. And I think that's relatively typical yeah. of, of girls. It's certainly my relationship with my father was fraught in other ways, but, but I found him very easy to love in a way that I, you know, I always felt um, a little on edge with my mother. It was not com as comfortable. Mm -hmm. um, so I gave them a, some version of, of that dynamic. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, I, you know, and my mother did live in the suburbs. I grew up in the suburbs, but I became a villager, um, whole, wholeheartedly became villager. But, you know, I still came from this other place. So there, you see that playing out yeah. when, when Becca goes to visit her. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, you know, and then I had to invent the whole history of, of Doris and Lou and their romance. And that was, that was fun. Yes. The backstory. 
Yes. Once again, that seems to be the theme running yes. through this conversation. Yeah. It really does. It it's it was sort of subconscious when I was um as I was reading, I was I just like, oh, I'm gonna write down that question, that question. These are all good. And I was like, a lot of it is about backstory and history. And I didn't intend for that to happen. It sort of reminds me of when um or when we're writing and somebody calls out an aspect of our writing that we didn't consciously put in there. And yeah. it really speaks to the other person. I know it's really fun when that like, happens. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you're welcome, but I didn't right. <laughs> actually do that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. What what do you, did has that has that happened to you where you are writing a thing and it's there's you're not there's not really a conscious awareness of putting something in, but it yeah, gets well, it's out. Just happened a couple of times yeah. here in our conversation. Oh, okay. Yeah, it happens it happens a lot. It's I like when that happens I do too. clearly you know, we are made of many parts, right? And yes. and some of them we're very aware of and some of them we're not. And yeah, you, you never know what's going to click for somebody else. I also, I often think about how um, the way that I remember my kids' childhoods and the way that they remember them often yeah. <laughs> are not meshing with each other. Um, <laughs> things that, that resonated for them passed me by and vice versa. Or just even, you know, when you talk to somebody you've known since you were kids, yeah. you share a lot of stuff. But I just was talking to a, a friend who I've known since day camp. And and I said, I said, do you remember the big fights we had when we were in high school? And she said, oh, yeah. And then it turned out we remembered completely different fights. Oh, <laughs> oh that's so oh, that's so fascinating. That And that's why I think it, it takes a village, not to put too fine of a point on it, but... <laughs> To, f to fully understand ourselves, I think it takes a village. Yes. Um, the village appears in this novel, at least to me, as its own character. And yeah. I I love it when that happens. I love it when place appears as a character. I think it's very hard. It's I find it very hard for me to do. But um, as, as you mentioned, that was something that is is very it, that's something you do very well and it comes it comes very naturally to you i felt very immersed in in the village um in this the this actual place greenwich village and uh uh and you and you'd said oh yeah i knew i was i was going to write about about this if i was going to write a novel it was going to be set here fell in love with this place what about greenwich village is so endearing that um and is so important it, not just to the to the book to the the setting this really couldn't have happened this way in any other setting um but but also to you i know it's part of your history and um in there a long time well first of all thanks to the the landmarks preservation commission um which declared it the first big um i think first or second big um the stark district a lot of it got saved from from the early to mid to late 19th century so it looks very, very different from the rest of the city. And I also, in the prologue, I talk about how the water table is particularly deep. And so it wasn't easy to build skyscrapers. So if you look at the west side of Manhattan, um, you see Midtown and you see downtown with, you know, massive skyscrapers in the village still, until fairly recently, remain low rise. It's it's largely brick buildings, beautiful, mm -hmm. beautiful brick that all comes from the Hudson River. Um I live a half a block from the Hudson River, um, which, you know, it's 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 a big, mighty river there. And I, you know, I'm out there all the time and and I feel 
tremendously grateful to have this river as my neighborhood. Um, and then, of course, villagers, you know, the village has a very different history from other neighborhoods in, in the city, because, in part because it was cheap. It was a slum. Um, so artists could move in, in, in throughout the 20th, much of the 20th century. So it was this hotbed of, of creative people. Um, it was, uh, you know, much more welcoming of, you know, and tolerant of, of different kinds of people and, you know, mm -hmm. and gay people from way back knew that they could be a little safer here. Um, and then, and then I met all these preservationists who were, you know, they were all so smart and so um, clever at working with the powers that be and they educated themselves so thoroughly. And I, you know, I received a, a really thorough education myself from these people. So I wanted to honor them. Um, and, you know, and all the grassroots organizing that we did went back when there was no big money in the neighborhood. Mm. Um, when we just, you know, a bunch of us would just get together in somebody's apartment and plan an event and try to raise a little bit of money. Um, so, it, it's about them. That's that's I, those are the people I wanted to to honor. It felt so populated with just experience and history and real life, and I just loved that. I I did. I felt that. I felt that. Um, we you know it, in the village are hemmed in on all sides by huge giant buildings, and yet that until recently you said it was it wasn't that way. I imagined it as brick. It, it said that uh, too in in the prologue, and it was so fascinating to just have the experience of being in this place but it was like being with a character and I just loved getting to know um this place that's all the way across the country from me um that I may or may not have wandered through at one point when I was a teenager <laughs> um and that 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 just experiencing places character is so I, I love it when that happens um because it's probably because it's something I'm I'm actually not very good at uh as as a writer um, so two, two more questions. We're coming up on the end of time here. Um, the end of our time, not the end of time. Sorry, yeah. Scott. Um, uh, so one thing that, um, weaves its way through this, uh, novel for, for various reasons, um, the obvious one, the, the tragedy, and then just kind of the overall life, not turning out the way that you hope it will, or, and then realizing that, and maybe it won't ever, um, is that it sort of seems that there is this uh, this other kind of unspoken character called grief that kind of comes in throughout, maybe mm -hmm. in unexpected ways, and then isn't there when you might expect it to be there. Um, uh, how did you how did you think about about grief and all, there's so many layers of it too um, while you were writing this book? Like what role? Was it a conscious thing? Did it just sort of like, yeah, it shows up when things we don't want to have happen happen, or it doesn't show up when it should? And what does that mean? Well, that's always been my experience of grief that I don't feel it when I feel like I should be feeling it. Mm -hmm. One of one of the my favorite things a friend said to me on the occasion of my mother's death, I guess it was my mother's death. Um, he said, "However, you're grieving is the right way to grieve." Mm. because I lost my father when I was fairly young. I was 25. I was a young 25 and I was dry eyed 
through the whole thing. And mm -hmm. I thought, what a monster I am. Something's very wrong with me. Mm -hmm. I, and I really believed that at the time. Um, and having, you know, lived many decades beyond that, I know that maybe I didn't, I wasn't ready to grieve yet. I was a little numb and a little shocked. Um, but, you know, now I, you know, at the drop of a hat, I can start crying, missing my father, you know, for decades. So I, I did have my own complicated relationship with grief and, Another quality that I gave Becca that resembles a little bit my life is that, that she lost her father as well. She lost her father much younger than I did, you know, and he was a very different sort of a man in yeah. different circumstances. But um, yeah, it's, that's always in the background for her. She, he was not the only person that she lost to yeah. death and she lost people to, you know, to bad arguments as well. And, right. Um, you know, people who are still around, but who she's been avoiding for yes. for years, you know, actually walking down different blocks so as not to go down their streets. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, I'm not sure how much of it was conscious, but yeah, it's, it is it is a book that, yeah, you're right, that it, it's a book about grief as well as other things, yeah, about, about yeah. surviving. Right. I felt like it was it it showed itself and wove itself in to the story um based on experience i think it's it's hard to to write something that's fiction that's just totally not um about us and i felt that was really that was really well done um there's a lot of uh avoidance of grief in our culture and we don't yeah. we don't make room for it we don't talk about it um or we say here's your allotted time exactly and then Nobody has anything to say when it shows up decades later, when it didn't show up when it should have. Um, and so I just, I really, I picked up on this, um, you know, like, oh, okay, we think grief should be here, but it's not. Oh, grief is here, but we think it shouldn't be. And yeah. I just, I loved the uh, the portrayal, however conscious of grief um, also uh, weaves its way into these pages. So um, final question, which I asked about Just Another Jack as well. Is there anything I didn't ask you about Save the Village that you wished I would have or anything you want to share as we wrap up here today? I find my mind going to the last big chapter and I don't want to say too much about it, but well, I'll say that Becca goes somewhere that she didn't think she was going to go mm -hmm. and, and uh, gets to know a character she never thought she would get to know. And, and I will tell you that I'm very glad about what you said that it seemed like I was having fun writing it. It it was actually a torment most of the time, mostly because I didn't have faith that I was going to pull it off. Mm. So I approached every writing day with nothing but dread. Mm. But yes, I so yes, and I and and I tried a lot of different ways of getting myself in in a frame of mind in which I could invent stuff. And I do remember one day I was sitting on my bed with my, my corduroy backrest behind me. And I was in a phase where I was trying to spend an hour just dreaming something into being just, you know, not mm -hmm. putting, trying not to put a lot of pressure on myself to produce anything. And so there's a long monologue that this other character she meets toward the end has about 
something that happened with his family a few years before in his life before he, you know, had tragedy strike his family. And mm-hmm. it's and it takes place in the South and it's made up completely out of my own head and I have absolutely no idea where any of it came from. Um, and I'm very proud of it. And people often come up to me and say, I love that 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 chapter toward the end. Yes. Yes. That there's another writing quote. Um, the ending has to be both totally surprising and inevitable. Exactly. And when I first heard that, I was like, how in the world? Yeah. <laughs> the shock of recognition, they'd sometimes say, yeah. Yes. Yes. And I, I felt that too. It was like, where in the world did this come from? And also, I know exactly Good. where this came from, having followed the, the novel throughout. Um, I also want to thank you for naming that just because you're a writer doesn't mean that writing is kittens and moonbeams all the time. Um, I also have had the experience of, oh, no, the this thing that I must write. I am dreading doing this thing. And yet here I am showing up anyway. Um, you do show up. Yeah, a lot. <laughs> and it's a lot of people think like, oh, writing. Yeah, you're a writer. So that must be fun. It must be. I've always wanted to be a writer. I heard that a lot. And I was like, really, though, <laughs> if you could do anything else, please do it. <laughs> but um, this idea that being a writer means that you always enjoy writing is not true. And I think it, it it's helpful to hear one of the one of the ways writing is not a solitary act and it takes a village is you're not doing it wrong if it's hard, if you don't enjoy it all the time and if you don't think you're up to it that's that's the piece the reason that it's hard the reason that it's it's torment as you say is often we don't think that we can do what we want to do as exactly and that's the thing that's hard it's you know when you're actually in the act of writing that's not hard it's getting yourself there yes the hardest thing is starting always and even though I know that, it's still hard. <laughs> still like, it, is, it is still hard. I know it'll be easier once I get in, once yeah. I get into the page. But yeah, right. nope, still. And, you know, until you succeed, you, you just fail over and over again, right? Yes. <laughs> have to invent this thing that doesn't exist and there's no blueprint. Yes. Creating something out of nothing is uh, something that's... Um, that doesn't, I, I think, I think it's, it's a lot, it's a lot harder than we writers give ourselves credit for. We are, we are really creating, even though, you know, people say, oh, well, it, you show up in, in anything you write. And that is on some level true, but you are creating something uh, that has never, has never existed before in yes, the form exactly. that it is. Well, Thank you so much for joining me today, Michelle. And I'm so um, excited to share just another Jack and save the village with readers. You will find um, for listeners, you'll find those links to get those books in the show notes, um, as well as more about where you can find um, Michelle's work and teaching. Um, If you are a writer, I highly recommend working with her as it has changed um, my ability to believe what is possible for myself as a writer. Oh, oh, that's so nice to hear. And thank you, Megan. This was really, really a great treat. Great to talk to you today.